Welcome to Prescription for Justice. My name is Martin Donahue. Our topic today is immigration, ethics, and philosophy. America is a nation founded by immigrants, exiles escaping religious persecution and fleeing violence and poverty. Unless you are Native American, then you are either an immigrant or descended from an immigrant. Our current president is the grandson of an immigrant whose German citizenship was revoked when he fled his nation to avoid compulsory military service. His third wife is a university dropout and model who obtained an H-1B visa, the so-called Einstein visa, ostensibly reserved for those demonstrating extraordinary ability in the sciences, arts, education, or business. Early in our history, we slaughtered Native Americans, forcing them off their land onto marginally habitable reservations, sending their children off to be educated in white culture. We kidnapped and enslaved Africans to harvest our crops and build much of our infrastructure. And we passed racist laws against Chinese, Italian, Irish, and Latin American immigrants. 44 million individuals, or 13% of the U.S. population, are foreign-born. Immigrants and their U.S.-born children number approximately 86 million people, or 27% of the overall population. 11 million persons are undocumented, many working for low pay under primitive conditions that jobs most Americans will not take. Under President Obama, 1.8 million dreamers, brought to the U.S. as children and raised here, were eligible to register under the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals or DACA program. They could come out of the shadows, obtain valid driver's licenses, enroll in college, and legally secure jobs. The Trump administration put an end to new DACA applications and no longer accepts renewal applications, moves currently being challenged in the courts. The Democrats have been trying unsuccessfully for years to pass a Development, Relief, and Education for Alien Minors Act, or DREAM Act. Such a bill seems unlikely given the current Congress. A widely held myth is that undocumented immigrants do not pay taxes and as such are a drain on the economy. In fact, about half of undocumented workers file income tax returns each year, contributing about $25 billion. They also pay $12 billion per year in state and local taxes, helping to fund public schools and local government services. $9 billion in payroll taxes for Medicare and Social Security, and $7 billion in sales taxes. Even so, they are ineligible for most of the services they help to fund, including Medicaid, Medicare, Social Security, and the Supplemental Nutritional Assistance Program, and cannot receive unemployment or disability checks. Meanwhile, our president, who unlike past presidents has refused to release his own income tax records, has bragged about not paying taxes, boasting that this makes him smart. Despite President Trump's xenophobic rhetoric about drug dealers, criminals, and rapists, immigrants are less likely to be criminals than native-born U.S. citizens, even after accounting for the fact that many immigrant criminals are incarcerated solely for civil immigration offenses. And it is important to note that being undocumented in the U.S. is a civil violation, not a crime. Since September 11, 2001, 95 Americans have been killed by terrorists on U.S. soil. Every one of the murderers was a citizen or legal resident of the United States. Young, white, 
so-called Christian males involved with far-right hate groups were responsible for over two-thirds of these deaths. Despite widespread fears of dying at the hands of a refugee terrorist, a person is 29 times more likely to perish from an asteroid strike, 260 times more likely to be struck and killed by lightning, and 129,000 times more likely to die from gun violence. Meanwhile, the U.S. Army has been kicking out immigrant recruits who had been offered a path to citizenship through service to this country, a bait-and-switch which makes no sense since many of these individuals possess language skills and cultural knowledge valuable to gathering intelligence and rooting out potential national security threats. Trump has severely curtailed and in some cases halted U.S. acceptance of refugees seeking asylum. More than 1,000 asylum applicants have been incarcerated for months or years with no resolution of their cases. Indefinite detention violates global treaties such as the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, the Refugee Convention, and the Convention on the Rights of the Child. Today, around 12,000 undocumented minors are in custody of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services Office of Refugee Resettlement. The majority crossed the border unaccompanied, but more than 2,500 were separated from their parents. Many of these children are being held in locked facilities, even in cages, deprived from contact with loved ones, given limited opportunities for play and learning, and suffering emotional and physical distress consequent to separation. Allegations of sexual abuse by captors are widespread. Counselors are scarce and children are frequently medicated with psychotropic drugs, sometimes without the consent of a parent, relative, or even court-appointed guardian. Despite legal representation, children as young as one have appeared before judges to state their cases. Many detention centers are run by for-profit private prison corporations with extensive records of malfeasance. Trump's no-tolerance policy has rightly been called child abuse by the president of the American Academy of Pediatrics. This organization has stated that family separation causes irreparable harm to children, disrupts brain development, and can lead to lifelong physical and mental health consequences. The 1997 Flores Settlement Agreement obligates the government to release detained children after 20 days. And while the courts have demanded that today's captive children be reunited quickly with their parents, the government has been slow to respond. Over 400 parents have been deported without their children, and the reality is that many families will never be reunited. My guest today is Alex Sager, chair of the philosophy department at Portland State University. He has published widely on the social and political philosophy of migration and is the author of a recent book, Toward a Cosmopolitan Ethics of Mobility, The Migrant's Eye View of the World. Welcome, and I'm very happy to have you, Alex. You're a political philosopher. What does political philosophy tell us about the immigration debate? Well, thank you, thank you for having me, uh, Martin. And you know, I think there's a tendency to think that philosophy isn't very practical, and a lot, lot of philosophy is is about questions about how, how how we should live. And immigration policy tells you an awful lot about what kind of society you are. And um, I think what social and political philosophers try to do is we try to articulate what what would be a just society. And if you don't treat immigrants that well, if your policies are such that you're doing injustice to people who are simply born in another place in the world, 
that's that's deeply problematic. And political philosophers uh, have done a lot of work in trying to th think about immigration policy from the perspective of, of justice, of freedom, of mm -hmm. equality. Um, I want to maybe just say maybe two things that, that philosophers ha have talked about. Mm -hmm. And one thing they pointed out is simply that nobody deserves to be born anywhere. And where you are basically determines much of the course of the rest of your life. It has, has an enormous effect. Mm -hmm. Economists will tell you that the number one factor in your standard of living is where you happen to be born. Mm -hmm. And um, not only do you not deserve to be born uh, in any particular place, but the way that immigration policy is structured is most of the world cannot immigrate legally to the United States or to any other developed country. Only a small percentage of the people in the world are able to legally um, come here. Mm -hmm. And so this comes to the second point that social and political philosophers have brought, brought up, which is the use of force. And social and political philosophers will tell you, whenever you, you use force against a human being, you have to have a very good justification for doing so. And the vast majority of immigrants are peaceful, hardworking people. I mean, they're just people like you and me uh, that are, maybe they're trying to seek a better life. Often they're fleeing violence, persecution. And the way that our policies are structured is that we detain, we jail, and we deport people like that. And from the perspective of social and political philosophy, you have to be able to justify that. And there are debates about to what extent it could be justified, but a, a lot of it looks pretty shabby from a perspective of justice. And, and uh, I guess anthropological timescales, the whole concept of the nation state and limiting immigration and limiting the free flow of human beings, which have always been a migratory species, is something relatively new. Yeah, the, the, the nation state, and this is something I think people often don't, don't realize, as an institution, it maybe has a few hundred years. And as a dominant institution, we're really looking at post-World War II decolonization. Mm. And, you know, some, there, there, there have always been restrictions in the United States to, to, to immigration. Maybe we'll, we'll talk about that a little, little bit later. Sure. But in, in many ways, borders were, were far more open in, in previous eras. eras. And um, that's, that's largely because until recently, the technologies didn't exist to, to exclude people from, 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 from immigrating. Mm -hmm. I'll just say one more thing that I, I find kind of interesting. If you look at the history of philosophy of immigration, uh, often what you find is you find that uh, states' rulers, what they were really trying to do is they were trying to prevent people from leaving mm. their countries. So the immigration, there were immigration controls, but they were often that they, you were not allowed to leave your country. And why is that? A tax base, a military service? A tax base, conscription, conscription mm -hmm. the economic power of mm -hmm. the nation was considered to be the number of people you have. And so this world where so many states are putting up restrictions of uh, whether people can get in, it's, it's actually a fairly, um, fairly unusual period in history. And I, th I think sometimes we, we, we lose track of that in our debates. We think, it, think it's natural 
Right. Yeah. It requires the whole development of, a, of an infrastructure and laws and technology and, and uh, use of force and militaries to, to, um, to maintain that. Um, I, I think that people often confuse law and morality. Can you address that uh, with yeah. respect to the immigration debate? Well, the, the, you know, you often hear, you know, from the present administration, this idea that, you know, we have to enforce our borders and we have to respect the law. And a social political philosopher will tell you that there are unjust laws. Law and mor morality are two different things. Mm -hmm. Law may be moral, uh, but it may also be immoral. And we have very clear examples uh, in recent history of countries, well, now, that pass laws that most of us think are unjust. What social political philosophers will tell you, you can't just say that immigrants are breaking the law. Rather, you, you have to ask, you know, are these the laws that we want to have as a society? And I'll just go back to what I said at the beginning. Most people do not have a legal way of coming to this country. And we don't have a process for having people who have lived here mm -hmm. as productive, um, members of community, often with children, often with U.S. children. Right now, our laws do not have any path that allows people to, to regularize their status. Mm -hmm. And you know, from social political philosophy, you really have to ask, you know, is, is that just, is that fair, is that who we want to be? And right. of course, in U.S. history, uh, that's, that, that's unusual. For, for much of U.S. history, it was possible to adjust your, your status. Uh, in fact, and often the, the, the barriers between permanent residents and citizens was not nearly as clearly marked as it is now. Right. And yet immigrants have been vilified throughout the history of our country. Um, can you address that and, and the waves of immigration, say just in the 20th century that came over and how those immigrants were treated? Well, you know, I, I would say probably the, the place to start is the, the 19th century, mm -hmm. you know, with the Chinese exclusion Act, the late 19th century, and a number of Supreme Court cases that uh, basically gave the executive branch you know, the discretion to exclude people for more or less whatever reason, you know, in including race. Mm -hmm. And so we, we have this sort of, we have a very ugly history in through, you know, much of the 20th century. Uh, people from Asia, people from Africa were almost entirely excluded. Mm -hmm. That didn't change really until around 1965. Uh, where it, it became um, uh, illegal to discriminate explicitly according to race or nationality uh -huh. or, or place of birth. Uh -huh. So we have that history. And then, of course, it's very kind of interesting when you look at a lot of the rhetoric you see today because you see the same thing said about the Irish, about the Germans, about the Italians, about uh -huh. the Yiddish. You know, they're, 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 they're different from us. Right. And you always have to be very careful of that word, us. Mm -hmm. uh, and again and again you'll you, you you see this type of language and then over time it's, it's a new group that uh, that becomes targeted and it's true and you, and you mentioned the unjust laws supporting the uh, the, the, the um, barriers to immigration to the United States and, and US history is littered with unjust laws just take all the laws that supported slavery for instance and the laws that uh, prevented women from voting and serving on juries and uh, uh, getting divorced or getting child custody um, in cases where they were abused or raped and so on. So the history is littered with that and hopefully the arc of history is bending towards um, justice ultimately. Uh, 
tell me a little bit about the objections that people have to immigrants, the sort of they're taking our jobs, they're, they're destroying the economy and so on. Is this, is this something new and is this based at all in fact? You know, it's really not fact-based if you read mainstream economists. Mm-hmm. And economists have given an awful lot of attention to these questions because obviously they're, 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 they're pressing questions. And what most economists are going to tell you is that overall, immigration has a positive effect. Uh, you mentioned earlier that uh, even undocumented immigrants, uh, they, they pay into the system. Right. And they're not able to get the benefits right. uh, back. But l- l- let me say something, because I, I think a lot of us, we have this conception of the economy as something fixed. So if you add a new worker, well, that worker's gonna be competing for jobs. And we forget, you know, people are workers, but they're also consumers. And so we've seen a lot of cases with immigration raids that have devastated small communities. And the local businesses are hit hardest uh, mm-hmm. because they're relying on the immigrant consumers that, that live in their, their, their area. The other thing is uh, immigrants are more entrepreneurial mm-hmm. than average. You know, and they create businesses, and they create businesses that wouldn't have existed if it hadn't, hadn't been uh, for them. I guess the other thing... And, and healthier, just to interject, uh, the so-called healthy migrant effect, just the fact that you can make the, the very treacherous journey uh, from either Central America or overseas to the United States um, requires someone at baseline is healthy. So this thought that immigrants are, are bringing sickness and, and plagues and so on yeah. has, has come up throughout history. And outside of uh, a higher risk for, say, tuberculosis, which is easily screened for and treated, that in fact is not the case, that they're a drain on the healthcare system. No, ab- absolutely, and immigrants tend to be young. And so young people, they pay into the system. And you know, there have been many studies that have pointed out if there was just a way for them to immigrate great legally, and let me get, get this straight, I mean, most immigrants do immigrate legally. Mm-hmm. That's something that often we, we, we forget uh. about, uh, that um, you know, that's, it's a very normal, part of our social fabric. And you know, you look around yourself in your community, mm-hmm. you're gonna know a lot of immigrants, and most of them are gonna be there legal, legally. So let's, let's keep that in mind. Mm-hmm. But anyway, just to, to go back to what I was saying, yeah. you know, as you know, younger people, it's younger people who are paying into the system. They're paying into healthcare, they're paying into um, to, to retirement and mm-hmm. social security and, and all that. Mm-hmm. Let me just say one more thing about uh, the, the, the immigrants taking our jobs, because right. you hear that again and again. Right. And again, economists have studied this. And what they found is they find in a lot of cases, immigrants don't compete for the same jobs. And I thought that it was, it was very funny. Um, a couple months ago, uh, there were reports that uh, President Trump in Mar, Mar-a-Lago <laughs> right. uh, had applied for um, the permission to hire a bunch of immigrant workers. Right. And you know, you might think this is hypocritical, and it, and it is but it's a necessary part of the hospitality industry. Mm-hmm. It's one of many industries, agriculture, meatpacking, some places construction. Mm-hmm. These are structurally dependent on immigrant labor. Right. And if we didn't have the immigrants, we would either not have goods and services that we value, or we, we would be paying much, much more right. for them. And the reality is, I think for most people, Uh, If conditions in their own country were improved and the U.S. was more generous in its foreign aid, as we've discussed on on other episodes of this program, 
most people don't want to leave their homeland. They, they don't want to leave their children behind. They, they don't want to leave their community, their culture. Uh, they come here either for increasing economic opportunities or a large number of them now are coming because they're fleeing gang violence. And uh, if you could address that, that would be helpful. Well, I, I'd say, you know, one thing that's kind of interesting about the current immigration rhetoric is until fairly recently, the, the vast majority of undocumented immigration to the United States was from Mexico. Mm -hmm. And that's no longer the case. Mexicans are no longer um, coming at, at those the, at historical levels to the United States. And there's, there's a variety of reasons. Mm -hmm. uh, Mexican families are having f fewer children. So the, the demographics have shifted. Mm -hmm. In many places in Mexico, the economy's are improving. Uh, so even if you did believe there was a problem there, it's no longer the case. People are, are, are leaving. Mm -hmm. But as, as you point out, right now, what we have is we have a large number of asylum seekers. Mm -hmm. People coming from Central America, fleeing gang violence, fleeing domestic violence, um, and their government is not in a position to protect them. And it's, it's very, very important to realize what people go through to come to the border of the United States. You know, they leave Guatemala or Honduras and El Salvador, they have to journey through Mexico. Uh, there are, it's an extremely dangerous journey. Uh, if they make it on their own, they're, um, they can be uh, preyed upon by um, smugglers, traffickers, um, sexual violence mm -hmm. is, is, is very common. It's, 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 it's an enormous risk. Mm -hmm. And people, people don't do it lightly. They, they do it because of uh, deeply unstable and dangerous conditions in the countries they're coming from. And limiting asylum seekers um, has forced many of them to turn to criminal elements, coyotes and others, to try to get them across the border, increasing their, their danger. Yes, no, absolutely. And you know, we've, we've created an industry in which people pay smugglers to, mm -hmm. to try to get into the country. And you know, again, that, that's a product of not having a legal pathway mm -hmm. in which people could get on a plane right. and say, hey, you know, I'm, I'm an asylum seeker. I wanna, wanna have a hearing. Instead, you, know, you either you endure a dangerous journey and you might do it on your own, or you might pay somebody who can help you, you know, do right. that journey. And, well, it's a national disgrace, of course, what's happening, especially with the children today. But uh, things really were not that great under Obama either. No, if you, if you talk to uh, a lot of immigrant communities, you talk to a lot of organizations that serve immigrants, uh, Obama was known as the, the deporter in chief. Mm -hmm. And uh, he, uh, his administration you know, deported more people than the Trump administration uh, actually has. Mm -hmm. And you know, we, we some people, I think, is that we, per year or uh, in total? Uh, well, certainly in total, uh -huh. but per year in the, the early uh, Obama, Obama administration, uh -huh. many more people were detained and and deported. Uh -huh. um, and there, I think there's a variety of reasons for why um, that's that's changed under mm -hmm. under Trump. But I think in a lot of ways, what you find with the Trump administration, I, I do think there are important differences. But part of it is is, is the rhetoric, and you know, talking about the Central American. Uh, migration. I mean, we really started started to hear about that in 2014. And what the, the Obama administration, they, they didn't separate parents and children, but they did create um, detention centers for families. Mm -hmm. 
And their reaction was, was very much, how do we stop people from coming to the United States to claim asylum? Right. And so... So what can our viewers do? Well, I, th I think one thing that's very important for immigration is there's a lot of myths about immigration. And so take the time to inform yourself. Uh, read reliable news sources. If you're on social media, follow organizations that do good, fact-based research in immigration. Talk to your friends. Again, I think there's, there's a lot of what's going on in this country that most people are not okay with. But if you're, if you're not directly affected by immigration, you tend to block it out. And so being aware of that. I mentioned community organizations. Uh, there are many faith-based organizations that are doing important work uh, with immigrant communities. Um, if you're part of those, I would suggest getting involved. Contact your, your, your representatives. It's, I think it's very important that members of Congress know that people care about immigration and they care about immigration and social justice. And one, one thing that's very interesting is if you look at polling data, most people in the United States are still pretty pro-immigrant, including uh, in b both parties. If you ask people questions like, uh, you know, should there be a pathway in which people can earn legal status? People are supported, support, supportive of that. So let your representatives know that you care about that. Um, and we are a nation of immigrants, and, and uh, I should mention that um, the sort of white elephant in the room is the fact that you've got two white males talking about immigration. And uh, this is just the first of a few programs we're going to do on immigration, and certainly we're going to have immigrants on in the future. But uh, Alex is a recognized expert in this area, and I wanted to lay an ethical and philosophical groundwork for future discussions in this area. Uh, and for what it's worth, Alex is uh, an immigrant from Canada. Uh, I myself am the son of immigrants from Canada via the Ukraine and from Australia, uh, who was just fortunate to have been born in the United States. Uh, U.S. immigration policy, uh, especially family separation, is a national disgrace, which has resulted in widespread international condemnation and weakened our already tenuous position as a moral force in international politics. Our treatment of immigrants, especially those seeking asylum and their children, must change. This is not a political issue, but a moral one. And it is up to all of us to affect change. I want to remind everyone that there are open access articles and slideshows on the Public Health and Social Justice website, or phsj.org covering myriad issues that are relevant to tonight's topic, as well as many others from environmental health to food safety to women's rights to race to healthcare. And I also want to especially thank Alex for joining us tonight. Alex, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for sharing your wisdom with us. Hopefully I can get you to come back on another time. Thank you also to our viewers. Uh, you can find all our programs on YouTube or through the Public Health and Social Justice website. My name is Martin Donahue. We'll see you next time.